Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. It's the 27th of March. It is Monday. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. If you've not visited visited with us recently at MyFaithRadio.com, encourage you to do that. This is a great day to sign up for the Holy Week Reading the Bible Together series. Um, and if you've been reading the Bible together with us during Lent, you're going to automatically get the Holy Week study. But maybe um, you didn't you know, participate during the season of Lent, which you totally understand. You can participate with us during Holy Week. So visit us at MyFaithRadio.com. Click on Count on Me and read the Bible together with us during this upcoming um, Holy Week. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 27. We always talk about context and context being so important when we're studying um, the scriptures. And so you really, this is one of those verses that you might be super duper tempted to pluck out of context and apply to everything and anything. And while you can do that, you must understand the context of the verse in order to understand its application to anything and everything. So uh, here's the verse from Mark chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All things are possible with God. So you have to know the, who is the them and who is the this in order to understand what Jesus is talking about. The temptation is to say, well, all things are possible with God and therefore everything that I want to do um, is made possible because God will do it, like, for me, with me, on my behalf. But you have to understand the uh, the context of this particular teaching. The them here um, uh, are the disciples. So the smaller context here actually begins at verse 23 in Mark chapter 10. But the larger context be- begins at verse 17. So Jesus is setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he didn't just say teacher. He said, good teacher. And so Jesus actually doesn't address the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he addresses how the man addresses him, which may just seem like a curiosity, but it's worth noting because Jesus is fully human and fully God, and he answers a question here with a question. And so um, answering the questions that Jesus asks is important. So why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he says to the man, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and your father. And then he said to him, or the the man said to him, teacher, yes, all these things I have kept from my youth. 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, well, there is one thing you lack. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by what Jesus had said, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So there's lots of things that we could say about this encounter with this rich young man. Um, it's, it's notable, I think, that Jesus knows him. Jesus already knows that this young man knows the commandments. Jesus looks at him and loves him. Jesus um, gives a particular instruction to this young man that many have applied uh, or sought to apply over time to everyone everywhere. It's not given as that kind of commandment. It's given to a person um, at a particular point in his life in answer to a particular question that he asked. The invitation of Jesus is come follow me. And that is universal. So that takes us into then uh, Jesus looking around and saying to his disciples, whew, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them, said to them hey, um, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Then he asked a question, is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle which you have to know that that is in reference to a camel having to get down on its knees, particularly when it has a load on its back, and crawl through um, a gate in the city wall called the Eye of the Needle. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to ask, uh, is it easier for a camel to crawl through the Eye of a Needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? It is about taking off that which is burdening you and getting down low and crawling in. Yeah, so that's the uh, that's the idiom there related to the camel and the eye of the needle. Um, but the disciples were exceedingly astonished, and they said to them, "said to him, Well, then who can who can be saved? Who can be saved?' That's the point of the possible or impossible verse of the day. Jesus looked at them and said, so he looked at his disciples and he said, in answer to their question, then who can be saved? Well, with man it's impossible, Jesus says, but with God." Well, all things are possible with God. This uh, possibility verse is about salvation. And yes, it is impossible without God. <laughs> but with God, thanks be to God, it's entirely possible. Matthew Sorens is going to join us next. We're going to talk about a range of headlines related to people on the move around the world. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. I still believe there's no high Matthew Sorens is joining us now. He's the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy for World Relief. He's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matthew, welcome back. It was great to be back with you, Carmen. Let's um, let's actually start with um, something that you brought to my attention, and that is um, something going on in the state of Florida. There is an immigration bill um, 
there that uh, I think people will find of interest. And maybe at first blush, they might not um, see all the concerns that you're going to help us to see today. Yeah, you know, very honestly, I don't tend to pay a lot of attention to state level legislation because because my focus for World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table is on immigration policy, refugee policy, which are really, for the most part, federal issues. Uh, but there is a state bill in Florida that um, we're actually really concerned about, particularly uh, at the intersection of religious freedom and immigration. So people may not always think of those issues as connected, but of course, part of you know practicing, exercising our faith is being faithful to what Jesus commanded us to do. And if you think about it, <clears throat> when Jesus gives the great commandment to love God and love your neighbors yourself, in Luke chapter 10, you know, the next question from a, a legal scholar is, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan who transports someone who is in need to get help. And so that element of transportation is interesting because with this new bill, basically one of the things it does is it redefines smuggling beyond the way that it's already defined. And of course, against the law and the federal law Um, in the federal law, smuggling is when you're helping transport someone into the country or you're transporting them in furtherance of a violation of immigration law. So you're helping somebody break an immigration law. There's new way the state bill, uh, at least as the way it's meant, it's uh, it's been drafted thus far, it would make it a felony offense to transport someone who was who entered the country unlawfully, um, so long as the the driver knew that that person was not lawfully in the country, or it's basically should have known. Now, that's concerning for us because I mean I can think of lots of ways that churches or Christian schools or colleges or other ministries use transportation, and in a state like Florida with 700,000 immigrants who are not lawfully present, most of whom have been there for a long time. Um, you know, it's not that uncommon for a pastor to actually know that one of his his congregants uh, is actually came into the country unlawfully 20 years ago. And most of the time, churches are serving people anyway. They think of that as part of their ministry is to draw people to Jesus, to disciple them, to raise them up for mission. Um, and they, you know, they, they may or may not have an opinion on th- their manner of entry to the United States, but they've never, under federal law, had any sort of legal requirement to report that. But, but if this bill would go forward in Florida, that pastor who gives a ride to, to church to someone or sees one of his you know, congregants in need on the side of the road and brings them to get help, he could actually be committing a felony offense and face jail time. Um, or not just a pastor, but any lay person as well. And even beyond the church dynamic, the school bus driver uh, who, you know, whose job it is to pick kids up for school, if somehow they know or should have known that that person was had unlawfully entered the country, could be committing a felony offense. So we're really concerned about the effect of this. Um, you know, obviously, we don't want we don't want people going to jail for going about their normal ministry activities. Um, and then even, you know, some would say, well, they're not going to actually enforce it against religious institutions. But the reality is churches and ministries are going to have to think about the, re- the legal liability of even having any sort of transportation involved in their ministry. And I think we'll see a, a chilling effect where churches just say, actually, we can't send the church fan around to pick kids up for youth group anymore. We can't, uh, you know, send, we can't have transportation in any way for out of the risk that we might know someone is unlawfully present. And I think it could really have a chilling effect on the ministry of the church. So we're really encouraging uh, the governor, Governor DeSantis there in Florida, as well as the legislature, um, ideally just to abandon this bill or to amend it to address some of those religious freedom concerns. It's um, it's exceedingly complex, and uh, and we would say here, Matthew, that the stuff that's happening at the state level and the local level um, is probably more important even than what takes place at the national level because it feels like 
um, everything gets stifled, the, you know, sort of the higher up it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though immigration policy is set at a national level, it sure does seem or feel like um, states and, and local governments are actually the ones making decisions about the welfare of people. Um, I guess I'm thinking here about, you know, cities or counties or states that have become so-called sanctuary um, states. That's that's a, you know, that's at a much more local level than whatever happened on a national scale. So it's um it's a it's a fascinating um piece of uh, or item of state legislation and um uh thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. Let's um let's go to the borders next, but we got to take a very very brief break. We're talking with Matthew Sorens. Uh, he heads up the Evangelical Immigration Table in addition to working for World Relief. So we're going to look at the U.S. southern border, but we're also going to look at the U.S. northern border because it's Canada's southern border. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I wanna wake up, I wanna restart Put the drum beat back in my heart I need to be revived Bring me back to life Continuing our conversation with Matthew Sorens from the Evangelical Immigration Table, you can find um, what we're talking about today um, at evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Matthew, read us in on what's happening both at the U.S. southern border and then on the Canadian southern border, which obviously is the U.S. northern border. Yeah, it's, um, you know, a lot, always things happening at the border. And I, I can't even remember exactly the last time we talked, Carmen, but I, the current too, dynamic too long, is too long. Yeah, it, it's hard to keep track of. There's so many things changing. But um, the current dynamic for the moment is that it, the U.S.-Mexico border is, still has a policy in effect it's called Title 42. That is a public health emergency law that says basically we're, we're shutting down um, asylum, which is the right to seek safety in the United States if you have a credible fear of persecution. Um, for people from most countries, uh, because of the the COVID-19 pandemic. But that might sound a little strange to most people because most of our governmental policies have kind of moved past the COVID-19 pandemic. And indeed, um, you know, within the next several weeks, the anticipation is that will end, uh, that policy will end as well. And what that means is it's likely that a lot of people who have not had the opportunity to seek asylum for more than two years now, it's just been closed down to them at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, there could be a large number of people who are are waiting for that opportunity. And now some people might say, wait, there's already been a lot of people coming. That's true. But what we've seen is certain countries of origin, like in Central America and Mexico, have been largely shut out from seeking asylum under Title 42. But our... The U.S. government's policies have been in some ways limited by the Mexican governments. So Mexico has said they would take certain countries of origin back and others they would not. And so based on which countries they're taking back at any given time, it's, um, you know, that has sort of dictated who's been able to seek asylum during this COVID-19 era. Well, those restrictions are going away. And in its place, the Biden administration has proposed some new regulations that actually look an awful lot like something the Trump administration tried to do 
basically a new rule that would say if you've passed through another country on your way to the United States to seek asylum, in most cases, with some exceptions, you're ineligible for asylum in the United States. Uh, and that may sound sort of reasonable. The, the goal of asylum is to get people to safety, not necessarily to get to the United States. The challenge is that it sort of is built upon the idea that the other countries people pass through are all safe places for them to go or all actually have an asylum infrastructure to really consider their case and grant them asylum. And that's been the challenge for a very long time is, I mean, Mexico's made some progress in improving asylum capacity, still a lot of very legitimate safety concerns for, um, you know, Central Americans or Venezuelans or Cubans or Haitians in Mexico. Uh, but, and then if you go further south into Central America, these countries have very, very limited capacity for actually, you know, considering an asylum claim and at least not to take in everyone who the U.S. historically has has been able to offer safety to. So we're really concerned about that at World Relief and have, have you know, we were concerned when the Trump administration proposed it and we are still concerned when the Biden administration, I think they would argue that it's not exactly the same. There's some exceptions built in place. Um and there's also some new legal avenues for migration for some of these troubled countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and some other places. Uh, we think those are positive, and still we're going to critique when we think that the U.S. is actually turning its back on legal commitments that actually are are you know international conventions that the United States has affirmed going back to you know many years. Which is why some of these might be challenged in court anyway. It, it it's not clear that this would stand up to court, and it didn't under the Trump administration. Uh, but we think that the Biden administration is in some ways turning its back on on the U.S. commitment to persecuted people. Now, we're not saying everybody who shows up should get in. We're saying everybody who sh- shows up should be given due process, basically have their day in court. And what this system does is it sets up new rules to keep you from even accessing that day in court. And we think that's a problem. I've had a, um, a recent encounter with a, a woman and her uh, daughter um, and they're from Moldova, and I have no question in my, you know, in my mind that they're not here um, through a process that was legal, or she would have uh, more confidence in accessing resources that I know are available to her. Um, so there's a lot of fear when a mm-hmm. person um, is here and they know that there's a risk of being sent away. Um, and I just think that makes it um, it, it makes it very challenging for those of us who, as individuals, are concerned about people. I mean, the policies matter, but the people are precious. And so, um, you know, how do we answer some of those very, very difficult questions? And I appreciate the way you help us do that um, with the resources posted at EvangelicalImmigrationTable.com. One of the things we want to invite people to um, is the monthly prayer that is um, uh, that's hosted by Matthew and others at the uh, at the at the so you go to the website this is the best way to sign up evangelical immigration table.com you can sign up to join um, the prayer uh, the monthly prayer event the other thing that you can read there um, is something Matthew has posted about um, something that he engaged in recently at the Gospel Coalition's Good Faith Debates, and it gets us asking a different question. Um, So the the question posed, should Christians support tougher immigration laws, or are we asking the the wrong questions? And I would say that, are we asking the wrong questions? Yeah, you know, I I, I appreciate you. I really enjoyed this opportunity to do this debate for the Gospel Coalition, and a really really, uh, smart uh, faculty member over at uh, Biola University uh, Darren Guerra got to be sort of my debate partner and really enjoyed the opportunity. 
But we were given this question of should we enforce tough, you know, should Christians support tougher immigration laws? And I do my best to answer that question. But I kind of start the debate by noting that sometimes for Christians, we only think about that policy question and we forget to ask the question I think should come first, which is how do we interact with our immigrant neighbors? What mm-hmm. does immigration have to do with the Great Commission, this command to make disciples of all nations? What does immigration have to do with the Great Commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves? And if we skip over those questions and go to policy, as important as policy is, and 100% I would affirm it's important, it does affect people, but sometimes we skip to policy and only talk about policy. It's only, you know, talking points from one party or the other, and we never get to the question of the church's role in ministering to immigrants, the church's role in, frankly, being composed in part of immigrants, and increasingly so in the U.S. context. And I think those questions are so important for the church in the United States today and, frankly, around the world. Um, I, I failed to get to your question on Canada. Canada is dealing with these same questions, and increasingly they're seeing people who are trying to seek asylum in Canada instead of the United States. And so Canada and the United States have revised some of their rules to clarify who's eligible for that. But I think the un- underlying issue there is um, to remind us that this is a global issue. It's not just mm-hmm. everyone wants to come to the United States. It's people are on the move for complicated reasons. There's not one reason. There's thousands of reasons. Um, and yet God is sovereign in the movement of people. In Acts 17, we see that from one man, God makes every nation of men. He knows the times and places where they should live and establishes that for an end. In verse 27, it says, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Yeah, that's the perspective I would love for the church to have, that yes, there are important reasons for why people are moving, and we should look at those reasons, and we should respond to them in thoughtful ways, but also be aware that God could be working through the movement of people towards his purposes, that men would seek him, that women would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Hmm. Matthew, thank you so much. I um, I was at an event at our church last night, and um, we had invited some folks who've been visiting, and my husband Jim is discipling this young man's name is Ben, and his wife is Leo, and Leo is Haitian, and she works with kids here in the metro school district where I live. Um, and so I sat with them, or they sat with us, whatever, and um, Ben had listened to something I had done on the show at one point, and he asked a follow-up question about it, and um, and that got us into a conversation about immigration, which led to a conversation about trafficking. And Leo offers into the conversation that um, as of like the day before yesterday, her cousin has been missing for a year. She Mm. paid a smuggler to get her out of Haiti and bring her to the United States. And she's now been missing for a year. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I, I talk with Matthew about these things a lot. I, I am read in on these issues and my heart breaks for this woman. I'm sitting next to her and she's concerned for, you know, the the welfare of her extended family who live in Haiti. And now for this one, who's literally lost, like she has a lost cousin. And, um, and I, and, and, you know, and so I just think that the desire, the desire is real to have a better life, to live in a place that is, um, you know, that is safe or safer than the place that you're now living. Um, and the pursuit of that is real. And if you imagine that you're going to insulate yourself from the conversation about human migration around the world, then then you're you're just not living in reality today. This is what is happening globally. And it's happening not only in our hemisphere, it's happening in our communities. And if we're paying attention, it's happening in our church. Mm hmm. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's such an important call for the church to, and, you know, I appreciate the reminder of how personal this is as well. It's, you know, it's, I met someone new last week in my church, a Mexican pastor who was getting threats from the narco traffickers. And, and he ultimately, I mean, two people in his church were killed. He made the decision to leave and his wife and mm-hmm. kids are still back there. And he's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a dangerous trip. He doesn't know what to do. He's waiting on asylum now. Um, and it could, he could wait a long time. You know, these are human stories who sometimes walk right up to you. And, you know, we don't have the option as Christians to be indifferent to that. That's right. That's right. Um, thank you so much. As always, we appreciate your ongoing ministry. Um, blessings on the prayer event later today. If you guys want to um, engage with Matthew further and you want to join in the prayer, evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Pluralism. I want you to think about that word for just a second. Pluralism. Ah, yeah. We know what it means for something to be plural, like, right? A multiple. It's not just one. It's many. Uh, Yeah. What is pluralism? What does it mean? Um, What does it mean to live in the pluralistic culture as a person who, um, you know, doesn't believe in relativism? It's a com- it's a complex matter, and we have made a mess of it, but it doesn't have to be quite that messy. Daniel Bennett's going to join us next. We're going to talk about the mess we've made of pluralism, and we're going to start with a definition of it. So what is pluralism? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Daniel Bennett is joining us now. You should be subscribed to his Substack, uh, Uneasy Citizenship. And if you are subscribed, then you already know today's post is entitled Pluralism Can Be Messy, But Defending It Should Be Easy. Daniel, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, read us in on um, what what is happening um, at a university in Texas. And I love the way that you approach it because um, you set it up by, you know, sort of giving us a scenario. So want to read us in? Yeah, sure. So ultimately uh, what happened is this group, the student organization at West Texas A&M uh, had planned to host a charity event uh, that would benefit a local uh, nonprofit in the community. Uh, the president of the university took issue with the content of the proposed event, uh, even though this was a registered student organization. And by all accounts, they had, you know, met all the standards for reserving a space on campus, and and they'd crossed their T's, dotted their I's, etc. Um, the president said said in no uncertain terms, you know, essentially we won't host an event like this on our campus. It's it's uh, harmful to people. It's uh, demeaning, and uh, we, we you know that's not who we're about. And so what I what I what I try to do in it, this is, you know, something that's come up in a lot of conversations on pluralism is rights aren't isolated, right? They affect everybody, regardless of who's actually claiming the certain right or protection under the Constitution. And the reason we're talking about rights here is, of course, West Texas A&M is a public university and therefore an, an entity of, of the state or the government. And so the group in question here was a pro-LGBT uh, group. I think they called themselves uh, 
Oh shoot, I'm blanking on the name right now. Something it's WT okay, for West Tech. I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling. Pull, pull it up. I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Well, no, it, it's, it's okay. But you have to scroll down pretty far to get to the actual yeah, content. Yeah, and, Spectrum WT because spectra- I love the way yes. you frame this. It could yeah. have been. This could have been a a let's say more uh, a, a conservative Christian organization that was. Um, yeah. hosting a, a an event on campus to raise money for a local nonprofit, and none of us would have gotten our hackles up, which is ultimately well, the point here we're going to make. Well, sir, I don't know. Well, sir, yeah, yeah so, sir, so so Spectrum is a, a yeah, this pro-LGBT group, they were going to put on a what they called a charity drag event, and, you know, they were, they were calling it a PG-13 event where there was going to be no, you know, lewd content or, you know, sexually charged materials, basically a way for students in the community to dress up and, you know, sing and do whatever else happens at a drag show. I've never been to a drag show, so I can only speculate. Um, but the president said, this is on, this is demeaning. We're not going to have a drag show. It's very much in line with the culture wars right now, right? There's been a lot of conversations about drag and, uh, performances, particularly in front of children, but you're right. Uh, imagine a scenario where this is a a Christian group or a pro-life group, you know, wanting to put on content that the university finds objectionable or, or uh, demeaning to a certain group of people, Christians, I hope, would be rightly angered by this and concerned by this about trampling rights. And instead, you know, there's a lot of conservatives and including Christians who are really going to the defense of the president here. And so the point of the article is not to celebrate drag shows. I say I wouldn't take my kids to something like this. I wouldn't go to something like this <laughs> as, a, as a citizen. Uh, but that's not really the point because I don't like something doesn't mean it should therefore be, uh, you know, up, essentially struck from from public view. If we empower the government to do these things, we're giving the government power to regulate views and expression that we enjoy and we prefer. So pluralism is messy. It's complicated. Uh, but at its root, it's much easier to defend it broadly than it is to pick and choose which expressions we want to keep around. Yeah, uh, I mean the the proposal that um, that you suggest is that you know we might have a comedic rendition of uh, you know of Bible stories, but we commit in advance to make, you know have a harmless depiction of well known stories from the Bible, aiming to communicate the timelessness of Scripture in an entertaining way. That would be our our hypothetical event that um, you were proposing. I might go so far, you know, Daniel, as to say, you know, w- what if my proposal were actually for some uh, of the grittier, um, more mm. horrific stories of the Bible, like a reenactment of the crucifixion. Right. I mean, yeah, you, you and know, certainly- because you're going you're gonna to have a man stripped naked, mm. beaten, um, bloody, um, crucified. And uh, there's, there's no more graphic, horrific event in all of human history and and yet we do live in a culture where we can not only read it in the privacy of our own homes and communicate it in the you know in the context of worship services we can declare it publicly and we can reenact mm. it in you know in mm. ways that obviously do no harm to the people uh, who are who are portraying it but what we're saying is you can't do things that are considered lewd in public um or even in in this case in a fairly private setting um and and I guess what I'm saying is I, I, I may find the way what you do very, very offensive, but nothing's more offensive than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we ought to be the people making it public. 
So this is a challenge. It's a big challenge. And it comes back to, I, th- I think there's a lot of tension here uh, with respect to the content of the student group specifically being a drag event, uh, feeding into this culture war, touching a nerve right now that this is the hot issue right now. And so the president, I think, rightly you know, calculated, hey, I'm going to get support on this. And it is concerning to me that the knee-jerk reaction is not to be more reflective. And goodness, I, I do this all the time, so I'm not trying to put myself above the fray here. Um, but we, we ought to, and that's the point of the article, it's part of the book that I'm writing and finishing, we have to be more reflective and forward and thinking and long-term thinking about the proposals and policies that we support how they affect us in the long term, not only from a gospel perspective, but also from just a rights perspective, because you're right. Uh, it's so easy for us as Christians to think, you know, the views that we have aren't offensive. They're not, they're, they're sanitized. They're not going to be, like you said, uh, you know, harmful to someone, but goodness, the, the crucifixion, if you actually read those passages and certainly Mel Gibson tried to bring it to light a little bit with the passion, um, it's incredibly scandalous, and rightly so, right? I mean, you can't sanitize something like that and maintain the the realism and the effect of what the crucifixion meant. So I hope that, I, my hope is that Christians can be thoughtful and reject the tendency to support banning expression that we just don't like, and rather come to terms with the fact that it's okay if people have expression that I don't like. So I don't have to participate in it. But in the old, in the long run, it's better for me. Now, this is not the same, by the way. And this is this is the last thing I'll say about this. This isn't the same thing as requiring or certainly supporting, say, drag shows to be uh, shown in like public schools where, where children are a captive audience. That's right. different, right? That's different. This is a private event. Relatively, it's on public university campus. No one's coerced to going there. Um, and so that it's it's a separate culture war issue as far as as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and definitely an older audience. I mean, that's, yes. that's part of the part of the conversation here as well. Yes. Um, uh, bias and biases. Uh, uh, we are all biased. I mean, it, we ought to be able to say that, and um, and we all be ought to be able to agree on that one point. So when we talk about our bias or our biases, um, can we just wade a little bit into this water um, without getting our hackles up? Do you think that's possible? <laughs> I would hope so. It reminded me of a couple of things. I'm sure the article that you'll share in the in the show notes here from Christianity Today reminded me of a couple of different things. Uh, first, this was years ago when I was doing my dissertation research in Illinois. Uh, a lot of my research was interview-based. And so I'd have to go into these interviews where I'd talk to someone for an hour or an hour and a half. And then afterwards, immediately... Um, you know, write up a, a response to the interview, not the uh, not the actual notes that I've been, you know, taking during the interview. But it's called like it's called a check on reflex. Or a re, it's a reflexivity check to basically remind myself in the moment so I can check it later how the interview like struck me at a personal level. Like, did they say anything that raised, like you said, like hackles up? Did it get me defensive? Did it get me concerned? Did something they say make me angry? Or were they saying things that I really appreciated and agreed with? And so it's a way for me to, and for researchers, to try to be as unbiased if possible 
when presenting this type of material in the context of research to try to make sure that our own views don't come through and taint otherwise objective information in the scholarly process. That's really, really hard. And I would say that I'm still, you know, very, very, you know, room to improve on this. But the article I thought was great, the, the, the CT article that you referenced, uh, this idea that especially we as Christians, most of us are going to be doing academic research, but it's so easy for us to not see the ways in which our biases affect our perceptions of the world. And one of the things I write about in Uneasy Citizenship is the idea of humility being a virtue when it comes to political engagement. Humility, not in the sense of being squishy or uh, lacking conviction in our political views, but being willing to say, I might not be totally right about this. I think I am, but I might not be. And so when I hear someone who raises an alternative view, don't go in that with our guard up completely and say, well, I'm going to dismiss this because this goes against you know pretty much everything I, I, I believe in and everything that I think is right. But go in and say, I want to hear more from you. And this is right in your wheelhouse, I'm pretty sure, Carmen, right? We need to listen. Um, and listen to the point to say, I'm willing to be challenged, not because I want to th- throw out everything I believe in, but because A, uh, this person is made in the image of God, and I want to understand where they're coming from, and B, they might have something valuable to say that challenges what I believe, and that can only be good for what I believe in terms of reframing and reorienting my perspective here. So bias is tricky. I'm not a psychologist. There's a lot of psychological biases that we put up just from a base human level. Uh, But I think we, especially as Christians, ought to be really comfortable going into these conversations with humility and a listening posture to try to keep these biases down. Yeah, and um, many of them are unconscious, and we don't think very often about how we are thinking or how we are reacting, how we are thinking about or how we are reacting to certain individuals and then how we are treating them differently than we would treat someone um, who had a different set of characteristics or viewpoints. And so that's um, uh, that's the challenge for each of us and all of us today. How do you go about identifying your biases and how do you go about identifying them um, when they're unconscious? Um, and when they're formed at a really early stage of life, like um, mm. how do we have conversations about that um, as maturing Christians? We're talking with Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand. No matter where you go, download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. Continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, let's talk a little bit about language. Um, uh, It is um, not unusual. It's absolutely not unusual, particularly in our American context, to hear a politician at virtually any level um, whip out some sort of religious sword to seek to slay uh, someone else in a conversation um, because they think they're going to score political points with, you know, with the people that they represent or are seeking to be elected by, um, by making some spiritual reference. Um, it's em- I think it's embarrassing to God most of the times that it happens. Um, but let's wade into this. Let's talk about language and let's talk about using spiritual references to score political points. 
Yeah, no, I think that's great. So I think a good place to start with this is uh, people that generally do it well. Uh, so there, there is, there is a place of course, uh, in, in politics and society for citing religious language and language from scripture. Presidents have done this for, for centuries. Uh, virtually every president has drawn on religious language in communicating to the American people. It just shows how resonant and uh, generally appealing, uh, scriptural citations and recitation can be, um, Presidents from both parties recently have done this, some to greater effect than others. Bill Clinton was really good at using religious rhetoric, even though as a person, you know, may not have totally resonated with him. Uh, George W. Bush was great at it, uh, speaking primarily to an audience of evangelicals using sorts of like dog whistle terms uh, that we would get as evangelicals, but the broader culture might not. Barack Obama, mm-hmm. of course, you know, had great speech writers of this. Um but but there's also a way, that, like, like you alluded to, to use religious language to demonize or to to call out. And, uh, you know, a good example of this might be, well, you know, we should pray for our leader. Someone says, well, I pray that, that, that our president, you know, that his days are few, just like the psalmist, right? Um, okay, that's kind of funny, I guess, Babylon B-style comedy, supposedly. Um, but it feels a little like, yeah, but there's a slightly different context here with David, you know, or with talking about praying for an evil ruler to fall. Um, the larger problem, I think, is casting uh, our opponents in more apocalyptic terms, right? Mm-hmm. To say, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you disagree with me on this policy or say if you support uh, a student group performing a drag charity event, then therefore you are a demon in society. You are a devil, and God will judge you in the end times. Um, I think that's a really, really dangerous tack to take to speak with that authority on temporal issues, um, particularly when uh, it's it's very uncertain about, uh, I guess, the, you know, v- scripture, I think, would be very uncertain about speaking into some of these contemporary issues in that kind of way. And so, yes, I do think it's dangerous. I think it gives us authority that we don't um, that we shouldn't necessarily claim. And I think it ri- r- runs the risk of us uh, sullying our, uh, our our witness to the world when we pick and choose how we use this language. Yeah. And so um, if you're wondering, uh, you know, are there are there places and, and times that this is happening that uh, Daniel and Carmen are uh, alluding to, but not actually pointing to. There's a situation. <laughs> there is one situation in Hawaii where, um, you know, this recently came to a head. And so, um, you know, an elected official um, referred to the um, housing commission um, liaison from the from the governor's office um, as a demon yeah. and um, and and then doubled down on that after apologizing, uh, then doubled down on it. So um, I think that when we talk about this, we're not just talking about Christians. I don't actually know that the person that made these comments is a Christian. But what I'm trying to point out is when you're using spiritual references of any kind and you're doing so um, against a, a person, directed at a person, um, you just need to be very thoughtful and very, very careful. Um, and I would say guard against doing it. Um you know, it's uh, spiritual warfare is absolutely real, and we ought yes. we ought to all be um, actively engaged in it, uh, recognizing that the devil is real, um, and he is up to no good all the time, 
everywhere, prowling around looking for a way to devour us. Um, And guarding against the influence of the devil is absolutely important. Demonizing people, um, it just reminds you, you know, what Paul says about this. You know, our our war is not against flesh and blood. Um, Mm. It's against the principalities and the powers of of the age in which we live. Daniel, we don't have time to talk. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's fine. No, I was was just going to say, when we elevate politics to this status of, you know, the ultimate in our society, it's really easy for us, including us as Christians who see the world in these types of long, hopefully long-term ways, for us to demonize uh, our opponents as, you know, and maybe justifiably so. But I think this is part of the, the reason why we try to bring politics down from this ultimate place in our society and reorient it as a way that we work and govern ourselves together rather than uh, being a place for the spiritual warfare to play out. So good. As always, such a blessing to get to talk with you. Thank you so much. You guys ought to be visiting with Daniel. Um, You can find him at the Uneasy Citizenship blog on Substack. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, one um, headline from the sports page for those of you um, who are literally getting all your news here, which is kind of hilarious. Um, so I'm going to do my best. A March Madness update. And then there were four, apparently, uh, in this upset-laden men's NCAA basketball tournament. The field has been narrowed to the final four. Number nine, Florida Atlantic, is set to take on number five, San Diego State. And number four, Connecticut, is going to face number five, Miami. Uh, Yeah, that's all I know um, about that. And on the women's side, number three, Ohio State, upset number two, Connecticut, ending an 18-year streak. And so apparently for the first time in like eight years, uh, Connecticut, the women's uh, basketball team for Connecticut, is not going to be in in the championship. Yeah, there you go. That's, uh, That's what I know. <clears throat> about that. Um, we got a whole nother hour up next. Uh, we're going to talk about what's in a day's work. We're going to be uh, lifting up prayers for the people across the southeastern United States who are suffering under um, a series of tornadoes. More activity expected later today. And we're going to answer the question of what time is it? What time is it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.